We're here. <laughs> We're at the sermon portion of today's service, and there's no real easy way for me to segue. So while I dismiss all of the kids who are younger than the next defender, so if you are in third grade or below, I want to dismiss you to go in the back with Miss Lacey. She'll put her hand up, Miss Deb, and then I think Nevaeh's in the back at the waving her hand for the babies with the nursery. So if you, are, if you fit that category, you are free to get on out of here. <laughs> now while the kids are on their way out of the room, like I was saying, there's no real easy way for me to segue. So we're just going to do it. We're going to move from what we were doing to what we have to do, and then we'll be done. We've been in a series working our way through the letter of 1 Peter. And today, our portion of the text comes to us from chapter 4, and we'll be reading verse 12 through 19, and then unpacking those verses um, as we work our way through them line by line. So let's just uh, let's get the text up here. Thank you um, for putting the text up. I'm just going to say a word of prayer. Uh, I don't want to do this in my own strength, and then... And then we'll dig into the Word, right? Father, we thank You once again. We come to You, Lord, again and again this morning. There's no such thing as communing with the Father in too great of a degree. There's no such thing in having conversation and dialogue with our Heavenly Father. There's no such thing. So, Lord, we come with confidence and with boldness to Your throne of grace this morning, once again, asking that You would advocate for us that Your Spirit would be on the move in our midst, that my words would be prompted by what it is that You want done, not what I want done. That anything that I say, Lord, that is not of You would just fall by the wayside. That we would actually, Lord, not be transformed by what the preacher says, but we would be transformed by Your Spirit and what Your Word says. So God, we're asking that You would advocate for us. Provide, Lord, and protect while we work our way through your word in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 through 19, we're going to read from the ESV, but if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Peter begins in verse 12, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings." that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good." My wife wrote this portion of the text on a note and stuck it on our refrigerator when we were living together before we were married in our first apartment, if I remember so. Way before I even came on the scene. 
She put it on our refrigerator in our apartment when we were living together before we were married, though. So there's the grace of God. Because He's done a work in both of us and taken us from where we had no business being to where we are now. And we still got a long way to go. But this passage is a key passage for my family. In this third and final section of the letter, the Apostle Peter opens with a thought that suffering is to be expected. And nobody likes to hear that. Suffering is to be expected. After opening with this thought, he closes with the admonition, and an admonition is a warning that those of us who suffer must continue to live righteously as an expression of abiding trust in God regardless of our current circumstances. Oh, that's a hard teaching. Say that again. He closes with the admonition that those who suffer must continue to live righteously as an expression of abiding trust in God regardless of our current circumstances. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't know where everyone's at in the room, you know? I'm not sure what it is that you embrace and what it is that you reject. But for me, it's my opinion that these eight verses that we're going to be dealing with this morning, they function as the doctrinal wrecking ball to the so-called prosperity gospel. I imagine that if Peter were alive today, he would be flabbergasted by the ridiculous idea that suffering is somehow incompatible with the Christian faith. I expect if he were here, he would be disgusted by the notion that believers are somehow entitled to experience only good things in this life. <laughs> I believe that if he were here, he would be repulsed by the false doctrine that if one suffers, it's because they lack faith. <laughs> we're going in today. If Peter were alive today, what do we think he would say in response to the so-called so prosperity teachers? Well, if he were in the room, I think he would say something like, Hello, modern church. Do you understand that for my original readers who lived in the first century, suffering was a part of the daily community experience? They didn't suffer for a lack of their faith. They suffered for their faith. Wake up! <laughs> The early church, Peter would say, faced hostility because there was a clear distinction in who they were loyal to. Now everybody in the room is saying, Amen. The prosperity gospel is low-hanging fruit. I believe that if Peter were in the room with us right now, he would say, is there a clear distinction in where your loyalty lies, AC squared? It's too easy to pick on somebody else. Let's take a look in the mirror. That's what I think Peter would say to us if he were in the room. Get your log out of your own eye before you try to deal with the splinter in your brother's eye. That's what I think Peter would say. So that's the question. If we were to bring in witnesses from the city who knew each of us, who were not Christians, who had a different worldview from us, would they say, when it comes to Nathan Austin, and when it comes to Gil, and when it comes to Amy, and when it comes to Jeff, and when it comes to Nate, that their loyalties lie with Christ alone? Or would they say, you know what? 
It's quite a mystery where their loyalties lie. I can't tell you that. <laughs> That's what I think Peter would be wanting to deal with if he were present in the room. So having that as the backdrop and having primed the pump of where we may or may not be going this morning, can you guys read this out loud for me, please? When his glory is revealed. Did we talk about taking, partaking in a meal in the new Jerusalem once again in a future day? Yeah, we did. Now for the second time in the letter, Peter addresses his audience as beloved. This is the heart of the father as he speaks to his most beloved child. Agapatoi is the Greek term. This is the same strategy which he employed back in chapter 2, verse 11. So it's not new to the letter, and it's not new to the audience. You see, Peter is preparing once again to both challenge and encourage the early church, and he knows that he needs to remind them that they are his most beloved. So when the challenge comes, they're ready, and so when the encouragement comes, they want to accept it. That's relationship, everybody. Beloved. When we have something hard to talk to our wives about, husbands, do we go to our wives and open up with my beloved, my most cherished person? It's not, it's not a part of my vocabulary. <laughs> Peter says it should be. You see, as modern students of the text, we have to be reminded that Peter's audience was largely composed of Gentile converts. He's writing to five Roman provinces. So he's got a Gentile audience. New converts who prior to their conversion, they were comfortable at home living in their cities. But now, <laughs> post-conversion... After having accepted the truth of the gospel, only now they're beginning to experience cultural isolation and hostility from their peers. What's going on? I thought this relationship with God was supposed to bring blessing. I feel like I'm experiencing cursing. There's nothing like a little persecution to make one reconsider their decision for Christ, right? We wouldn't know because we live in a place where we have hegemony. That's a $20 word for the lion's share of the culture in America is driven by what? Christian ethics and morals. So we have no idea what it actually means to be persecuted. But Peter's original audience did. They knew. They were the sojourner, proverbially. They were the outsider. And they had become that when they made their decision for Christ. And it's for these reasons that Peter writes these very important words, do not be surprised, although or as though something strange were happening to you. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be found on your heels. Don't be surprised. Now William Barclay, he writes that it's human nature to dislike and to regard with suspicion anyone who is different 
It's true. That person is weird. You see what that person's wearing? You hear how that person talks? Do you know what that person's into? We do it all the time. By definition, the Christian is necessarily different from the world. So it's no strange thing. These newly converted Gentile Christians were having a particular impact on their city as they exemplified the standards of Christ in their daily lives. This is the conscience being born into the city that the city doesn't want. (laughs) Just shut up and go away. Nobody wants to hear from you. How many of us know that the transformative power of the Spirit can be an offense to those who do not yet know Christ? It's a reality. One New Testament author says, we are the aroma of death to those who are perishing. A strong language. The aroma of death to those who are perishing. Now the experience of persecution, and I'm talking about suffering harm to any degree so that we can be included in this conversation. The experience of persecution can without a doubt make life exponentially more difficult. However, Peter wants to remind his loved ones that suffering is a sign of God's purifying presence. You know that worship song? Another one in the fire. You ever heard it? Yeah. When we're suffering, people, how quickly do we forget that God is Emmanuel, the one who wants to be present with us? When we're pressed... How often do we find ourselves saying, how could you let this happen to me, God? Where are you? Experience of persecution can make life exponentially more difficult. But God is present, and we cannot forget that he is present. The fiery trials of this life function to test the genuineness of our faith. Is our faith genuine? Well, you know how to best answer that? Watch one another when we suffer. I don't care what it is that we have to say. I want to see how we respond when we face trials. If we were to pause for a moment and set our attention on the text, how long do we think it would take before we recognize that rejoicing and the shock of surprise stand at opposite ends of the spectrum. Because they do for the author. He says, let's go to the next slide. Do not be surprised, but rejoice, rejoice and be glad. Peter's putting these things on the opposite ends of the spectrum. To expect suffering is not to welcome it. We need to be clear about this, church. Nobody in this room should be praying for suffering. That would be ridiculous. Christians are not masochists. So when we talk about the expectation of suffering, we're not talking about throwing the welcome mat out for it. There is no joy in the act of suffering. However, there can be joy, and there is joy, when believers understand how suffering puts them in solidarity with the Master. I want to be united to Christ. 
Well, you know what? I find Christ to be most present, most near and dear when I'm suffering. Ah, so it's not the suffering that I take joy in, but the fact that God is present in it that I take joy in. James has a really good way of saying what I just did. There's no joy in the act of suffering. We're not preaching piety here. We're preaching the text. Now, according to Peter, suffering for the sake of the kingdom is a privilege. We need to stop treating it like we're being penalized. How we choose to respond in the midst of our, supper, in the midst of our suffering is a double-edged sword. Our response in the midst of suffering is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can deepen and develop our relationship with God. On the other hand, it can corrupt and impede our relationships with others. How we choose to respond matters. What we do in our bodies matters. This is something that Peter is about to address in great detail as we look at the next three verses. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? This is like not one of my favorite Bible verses. If you are insulted, you are blessed. I struggle with this one. If I'm insulted, I'm blessed. That's tough, God. Because when I'm insulted, I want to clap back. I want to show them how smart I am and how stupid they are, and I want to make them wish that they never even looked twice at me. I want to put them six feet on the other side of the dirt. That's what I want to do. Because they get in my way, and if they were under the earth, then they'd never have the opportunity to get in my way again. Anybody else ever feel like that? Or am I the only one? Alone? Alone. I mean, I fantasize about this stuff. You all want to act like you don't, like... Somebody cuts us off on the road and it's like you're demon possessed. <laughs> now we've asked the question before, but I'd like us to ask it again this morning. Did Peter's life experience inform his doctrine? It's a very important question. Did Peter's life experience, did his tutelage under the master inform what he wrote and what he spoke about? That's what we're about to find out. So I'm going to need some folks to volunteer to read. Who wants to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12? Anybody? Nathan, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. I need someone to look up Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Who wants to do that? Dasha's got her hand up. Brandon, you can look up Acts chapter 5, verse 40 through 41. And who else did I see raise their hand? That's all right. I'll read the last two. That's actually how I have it planned in my manuscript, so we'll just stick to that. Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, everybody. Everybody's favorite, favorite sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. When you got it, Nate, stand up and read it loud and proud. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. 
rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecute the prophets who were before you. And I, I, thank you, Nate. I don't know about you guys, but it sounds like Peter is citing the words of the master in this portion of the letter. Now, call me crazy, but before we drive off the end of the cliff and say that's what he's doing, let's read Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Who's got that? Dasha, when you got it, stand up and read it loud and proud for us, please. Thank you. New Testament scholar Peter Davids notes that the context of the word insulted in 1 Peter goes beyond verbal rebukes. It's the same with the Gospels. In this context, it means to be rejected by society. To be rejected by society. (laughs) I think we just heard something about that. Blessed are you when they exclude you. Canceled. Right? So it's interesting that Peter seems to take what Luke wrote about the experiences and the ministry of Jesus, something Peter would have been present for in the teaching of. It seems like Peter takes the Sermon on the Mount and he just says, you know what, I'm going to kind of paraphrase and repackage and include this in my letter because whatever Jesus said is better than anything that I could come up with, right? And so he does that. What about Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41? When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and of themselves. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Thank you, Brandon. This one gets me. Beaten and charged with a crime. And their response is to rejoice? Did Luke get that right or is this a typo? I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? Beaten and charged with a crime. And the response is rejoicing. Now, this word right here in the Greek is makarios. It's a different word from what we see in in, in the book of Acts when it talks about rejoicing. But the definitions are very, very similar. You see, makarios is a unique word in the Greek. In the Greek, they had one word for like what we have 20 words for, blessed and happy and feel good and excited and loving it. And that's really, they got one word in the Greek for all of that. And it's interesting, if you do a word study, you like find how the English translators struggle to put this in its proper context and make the English fit the sentence and the grammar and the syntax every time they use it. So here's the thing. They were insulted... They were being rejected by the society and its leaders, and they were being put out of the synagogue or out of the temple. Was it the temple? Yeah. And their whole response is joy, happiness. For what? They suffered for the name, Luke says. We've got to pay attention to the words that are being used by the writers. Now we could stop here and we could say, okay, it's clear that Peter's life informs his doctrine. But I want to go one further because I want us to deal with this strange line. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Now, we could talk about passages out of Exodus or Numbers where, you know, Israel is traveling through the wilderness and the Spirit of the glory of God is manifesting in cloud by day and fire by night. We could read from Kings or Chronicles and we could see that when the temple is inaugurated that the Spirit of the glory of God fills it with such a thick presence that the Levitical priests can't even do their job. But I want us to look at a New Testament passage because we are on this side of the cross like they were and I want us to understand how this functions in the covenant of God's grace. So we're going to look at Stephen's life. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 8-15 through 15 if you have your Bible. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, let's just stop there. He was appointed by the apostles. Peter is one of the apostles, which means that Peter would know who Stephen is. They would do ministry together. The ministry that Stephen would do would be in the acts of service. The ministry that Peter would do would be in the acts of preaching and praying. Just read the previous section if you're asking how did Matt get this information. Stephen, full of grace and power. This word power is dunamis. Sam Storms, Dr. Storms says that this word dunamis is synonymous for the work that only the Spirit can accomplish. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes, and of the Alexandrians, and from Sicily, and from Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. There it is, the spirit. They couldn't dispute it. Now, we could have stopped in Acts chapter 5, but I wanted to hold it until here. In Acts chapter 5 and right here, we're seeing the promises of the Messiah come to fruition. Whether you stand before men or kings, my Spirit will give you the words that you need to speak so that you cannot be refuted. When necessary, I'll provide, God says. And it's coming to fruition right here. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change all the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This verse 15 is very interesting to me. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council. That means all who sat in judgment over him. Not the false witnesses. Not the people who were there to see the daily happenings. But the ones who stood in judgment over him, they looked at Stephen's face and they saw that it was like the face of an angel. Could this be the Shekinah glory of God manifesting itself in the physical face of Stephen? It could be. It did that for Moses when Moses came off Sinai. What caused these witnesses to tell Luke this very interesting statement? Man, there's a lot of speculation. But when you look at the text and its consistency, it gives real good cause for wondering if this is the glory of God being made manifest in the person of Stephen. 
Who better to recognize it than the elders in Israel? Look at chapter 7 with me, verse 55 and 56 real quick. And he said, behold, Stephen is either standing on the edge of the stoning pit after being dragged out of town or he's been kicked into it after his hands were bound behind his back. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Who do we think gave Stephen the ability to see through what is seen and see into the unseen? I would say it was the Spirit of God. What was happening to Stephen? He was being persecuted to the point of death. If you are insulted, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You know this promise is for you too? If it was good for Stephen, then it's good for us. Amen. Amen. After this short survey through the text, I think we can confirm that Peter's life experience informs his doctrine. And from what I can tell, it's healthy. It's healthy doctrine. It's the kind of instruction that should be passed on. Why should it be passed on? Because, it because in its experience, historically speaking, it leaves those who are feeling persecuted and overwhelmed feeling encouraged. That's why it should be passed on. Are we feeling encouraged this morning, saints? Amen. As we develop our understanding in regard to how God is present with us in our sufferings, look, if this doesn't get you excited, nothing will. We're talking about when you are most pressed in your daily life, God is most present. If you're not excited about that, you better get a real good internal audit going. What's getting me excited lately? If it's not the fact that God is with me when I'm suffering, oh man, we got some problems. Yeah, some big ones. God is present with us in our suffering. Peter seems to turn the corner in verse 15. If we take a step back, we can see that not all who suffer are blessed. It seems to me that verse 15 sort of functions as a catalyst for self-examination. If you're going to suffer, make sure it's not for any of these things. Don't be a murderer. Don't be a thief. Don't be an evildoer. And specifically, don't be a meddler. You guys were probably thinking, man, I thought the first three were bad. You know, like that's, again, that's the low-hanging fruit in the list, everybody. <laughs> we don't even need the Bible to prove that three out of four are just simply wicked and worthy of punishment. However, this last one gets tricky. Now, some of you might be going, why would Matt say we don't need the Bible for this? And I would say, well, the Code of Hammurabi, which predates the Mosaic legislation, the rock that has the law inscribed on it that's at the Louvre in France, that predates Mosaic legislation, it talks about all of these things as wrongdoing, evildoing, and things that are punishable by even capital like uh, discipline. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that outside of Israelite law, 
all nations, historically speaking, see murder, theft, and evil doing as bad. You don't need the Bible for that. Don't murder. <laughs> God writes it on our hearts. But this word meddler is tricky. It's just tricky. What makes it tricky is that it occurs only here in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Bible, not even in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it can't be found in Greek literature until the late 4th century. Everyone say hypoxa. Say legomena. Now put it together. Say hypoxa legomena. One-time use. Single usage only. That's what it stands for. And that's what this word is. In fact, because it can't be found anywhere in any Greek manuscripts until the late 4th century, it's probably most likely Peter made this word up. It happens all the time. Anybody know in Germans, they take words that they don't have, they don't have things for and they just, boom, they stick two words together. and just, How many letters is in that? Go look up some of the signs that exist in Germany. It's like, that thing's like 20 feet wide. Yeah, well, we didn't really have any words in our language, so we just kind of... Looks good to me, looks good to you, we all agree, okay. <laughs> if it had's happening today, good chances it was happening then. <laughs> so Peter probably coined the term. Now before we go down the rabbit hole, let me just try to summarize for us what I think is going on here. Of the four terms mentioned, three could be committed by Christian and non-Christian alike. So you've got four terms, and the first three can be committed by anybody. Which causes us to ask the question, was the fourth some sort of activity that was particular to Christians in the first century? Most likely it refers to the one who meddles in another affairs. In our modern day terminology, we would call this person a busybody. Nobody likes the busybody. Now, Alan Stibbs writes that it seems likely that this is a reference to possible ill treatment in which Christians become involved at the hands of their neighbors as a consequence of unwise and improper interference into people's lives. Translation, this is descriptive of the overly zealous Christian who goes about sticking their nose into situations where they ought not be involved. Amen! <laughs> it was written to them, but it's for us! <laughs> yeah! This is descriptive of the overly zealous Christian. We all know him. I used to be one. Sometimes I still am. <laughs> Gentle persuasion is one thing, everybody. But denouncing idolatry in a temple courtyard and interfering in the affairs of another family is quite another regardless of our good intentions. Now let me give you some modern day examples so that we can understand this. I think it would be absolutely disgusting for one of us to make plans to visit the local mosque when they're hosting service to walk up in the mosque in the middle of their service and to get into an argument where we want to discuss apologetics with the imam while he's trying to encourage his congregation. I think that would be disgusting. Shows no tact. It's comparable to if one of us were going to buy a plane ticket with the sole purpose of flying to Texas 
so that we could go to Lakewood or fly into California so that we could go to Grace Community Church to rebuke either Joel Olstein or John MacArthur for their whack doctrines. Did he say John MacArthur has whack doctrine? Well, he is pre-mill dispy, so yeah. Like, for me, that's kind of off the table, you know? Art would say, Matt, shut up! That's the way that the Bible preaches the end of days. And I would say, amen. And we would continue to walk side by side with one another. But Art and I would never make it a point to, in an inappropriate environment, to call one another on the carpet. We wouldn't do that. It would be disgusting. It would show no tact. It lacks respect and it shows no honor. And Peter previously says, honor everyone. Now it gets a little more difficult when we talk about interfering in the affairs of another family. So let me just... Make this clear, Christian. If you are a Christian, you have immediately opened the door for any brother or sister that you are in relationship with to rebuke and admonish you. You have done that. And the text gives the process for it. Now, some things have to take place. There has to be clear sin. It's very helpful if the sin has been committed against you and you're not advocating for someone who doesn't want to be advocated for and if your rebuke or your admonishment can't stand on the text, then your rebuke or your admonishment falls. That's how it works. So here's the deal. When it comes to meddling in the affairs of another family, we have to think about it like this. As Christians, we have no business putting Christian standards on non-believers. No business. Paul says in Corinthians, what business is it of mine to judge the outsider? Pretty stinking clear. Romans 6. Dead in sin. Exactly. Ephesians, right? They're dead in their trespasses. They're enslaved to their nature. Right? They're helpless without the Spirit of God. So here's the deal. We don't put a Christian standard on an unchristian family. And now this family term has multiple categories is it immediate family is it the neighbor family is it a family of friends it's any and all of the above that you can think of don't put a standard on someone that they can't understand let alone attain try living it out in front of them and see how that works so that's our modern day examples now, in the end, when we look at this passage, I think that Peter is attempting to communicate that no Christian should stand guilty of bringing reproach on either the gospel of God or the name of Christ. That's it, period. Full stop. Don't do it. Don't bring reproach against God or His bride or His word. And to avoid doing that, Peter says, just don't do these four things. <laughs> Especially you, Christian, don't be a meddler. <laughs> Don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. Now, if we got into the philosophical argument of morals and ethics and Christian ethics and we were wondering how far we should go, when we should go, that's a different conversation. But every conversation in that realm is a case-by-case -case basis. So even if it worked in one that was similar to another doesn't mean it would always blanket the approach. Amen? Critical thinking. That's what we got to do. Now, verse 16, Peter addresses what type of activities may be considered acceptable. So he talked about what's unacceptable. Now he's going to talk about what is acceptable. And he's talking about what's acceptable when it comes to suffering. Because that's our context. In the first century, 
Suffering as a Christian would not qualify as a socially acceptable compliment. It wouldn't. Oh, you're suffering as a Christian? You deserve it. That would be the thought process. How many of us are aware that the title or nickname of Christian was uh, negative in its original connotation? Yeah. It was given to us by outsiders. Which means that we didn't come up with it, which means we probably didn't want to be called it in the first place. It wasn't until early in the second century that Christian sources decided to adopt and employ the term in a positive light with any sort of frequency. So about 100 plus years after the life of Christ is when the church finally was like, we can't escape it, we might as well embrace it. And it started with Justin Martyr. The thrust of Peter's instruction in verse 16 is that his readers are to live in such a way that the only charge leveled against them for which they are actually guilty is their Christian faith. Peter's saying, look, if you're going to be guilty of anything, be guilty of being a Christian. I want there to be so much evidence stacked against you when they put you on trial that they have to say, you're guilty of being a Christian. That's how it works. That every witness who speaks against you would say this man or this woman or this child's life is absolutely sold out for God's glory. That's what Peter's saying here. And in such cases, that person should not be ashamed. Paul uses very similar language since you mentioned Romans 4. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For I am not ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Peter says there's no reason to be ashamed. The grace of God is a wonderful thing, isn't it? We say yes. The grace of God is a wonderful thing. Have we put two and two together? I find it odd that the author who wrote this was in fact the one who out of shame and fear cursed the Son of God while he was trying to warm himself next to the fire. I swear to God I don't know that man. I swear to God I've never seen that man. I told you I don't know him. Peter says no. No, 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 no. I know what it's like to be shameful in your behavior. Try being unashamed for God. The grace of God is so beautiful. Peter was redeemed and equipped to help others stand where he himself once fell. So I want to know, church, because we are redeemed, are we in the position where we are helping others to stand where we have fallen? Because that's the necessity right there. We talked about it last week. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom offers guidance. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now, I want to be clear here. Our ethos is to question everything that I say or that anyone says from this pulpit and to challenge everything. So I just want you to know that my conclusions, theologically and doctrinally, may differ with yours, and that's okay. We can have a conversation about it. It's not about winning the argument. It's about putting our faith in Jesus and having the Spirit walk us into deeper understanding. 
And he might use you to put me in a level of deeper understanding. And he might use me to put you in a deeper level of understanding. So let's just walk side by side where we differ, right? Amen. Now Peter writes to remind his loved ones that their current suffering is evidence that God's judgment has already begun. That's the fact of the matter. Go back and listen to the last sermon in the first Peter series and you will see that we are living in the last days. But just because we're living in the last days doesn't mean we're anywhere near the end of days. Okay? So Peter's writing to remind them that their current suffering is the evidence that God's judgment has already began. Now Thomas Schreiner notes that the phrase house of God refers to the Old Testament where God's house is what? So someone said it, that's it. The temple. You guys know these answers, just speak them out with some confidence. Even if we're wrong, that's how we get right, we get corrected. You know? So let's look at two passages together. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3 through 6. Art, can you look this up? Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3 through 6. And then uh, let's see. Tom, can you read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 4? These are both in the prophets if you guys don't know where they're at. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing you guys. <laughs> uh, Art, give Tom. Are you there, Tom? Yep. Okay, so go ahead, Art. Read it loud and proud. That's all right. <laughs> Go ahead and take it from the top for us. Okay. Yeah. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in Israel. Yes, please. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him to the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is a mark and be him in my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the council. So in the context of what we just heard, where does God's judgment begin? In the, in the temple, at the sanctuary. And it starts with the elders. Okay, let's listen to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Pre-exilic, 
or mid-exilic, however you want to view Ezekiel, post-exilic with Malachi, going into the intertestamental period before our Lord Jesus was born and after they had returned. And God, in both instances, begins his judgment at the temple with his people. In Malachi, it's more like a refining fire. In Ezekiel, he's there to annihilate. In both instances, Israel had apostatized. They were no longer following the Lord. It's interesting that Peter draws on this refining fire graphic imagery, this metaphor of fire purifying, smelting. It would have been very familiar to them because this is how they would have made all of their weapons. It's how all of the jewelry that the women wore would have been produced. It would have been very familiar to them. It's in this instance that I find the words of William Barclay once again to be very helpful. He writes this, and I think that we need to hear this today, church. Where the privilege has been the greatest, the judgment will be the sternest. Are we privileged? You know, Frank Turek says that we have access to more information than any first century rabbi could have ever dreamed of. We have no excuse. Put, put your phone in your hand. You have a wealth of knowledge and information. So when you give the answer, I just don't know, it's nobody's fault but yours. There are adults in here who are going to school after having not gone to school for a long time. That's commendable. Because they recognize that there is more. There are adults in this room who are considering going back to school because they recognize that there is more. A lack of time is not an excuse because really it's a lack of discipline. That's what it is. It's a lack of discipline. So we need to hear this line again. Where the privilege has been the greatest, the judgment will be the sternest. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. She said something that's beautiful. Look, just because we don't have the answer doesn't make us dumb. Refusing to find the answer is what makes us dumb. Refusing to go to someone who can help you find the answer, that's stupidity. Because that's kicking against the goads. Like someone is there that can help me. But I'm going to actively refuse to engage because I would rather remain ignorant. Well, then you will be so. Oh, that's a hard teaching. Yeah, well, read the Bible. There's a lot of hard teachings in there. That's not my opinion. God saves us not to leave us where we're at, but to change and transform us into who He wants us to be. In both instances, Israel had apostatized. Israel was given the oracles of God, Paul says in Romans. This fact should not frighten the people of God. Rather, it should function as a sober reminder that to whom much is given, much will be required. For if God is this hard with His own church, how much harder will He be with those who do not obey the Gospel of God? 
That's the thrust of what Peter's after. He's encouraging the church. Your suffering now will pale in comparison to an eternity of separation from the Father. So welcome the suffering and be glad that God is present in it with you because in the end you will be vindicated and the unjust will be shamed. That's it. That's the Gospel. You don't want God? You don't get Him. <laughs> Depart from Me, for I never knew you. Not because I didn't want to know you. I'm omniscient and I know all. But because you didn't want to be in right relationship with Me. So since you don't want Me, I'm not going to force you into some type of relationship with someone you don't want to be in relationship with. Exit stage left. <laughs> I will give you exactly what you want. And what you wanted your entire life was not me. So don't be angry that I gave you your heart's desire. That's how the judgment is going to sound. Church, we need to be aware of this. Can you guys read this next slide for me? We're almost done. It's here in verse 18. We look at verse 18 and we see that Peter is attempting to reinforce the point that he just made in verse 17. And he's doing it by what? By citing the wisdom of the Proverbs. Peter's not attempting to argue that salvation is difficult for the Lord. Nothing is difficult for God. He's already accomplished the work so that we can be in right relationship with Him. Now it's on us. The Gospel has been preached. Will you respond? The Spirit has moved in your midst. Will you hear? There's a human responsibility attribute in Christianity. Peter's not attempting to argue that anything is difficult for the Lord. The point is that the journey of salvation is fraught with difficulties even for the righteous. And this is due to the pressures that we face. Why? Because of our faith. Have you ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress? If you have not, put it on your to-do list in 2023. And you will see that this is very, very real in the life of the Christian. But instead of appealing to John Bunyan, we should appeal to the words of the Master. And it was Jesus who taught, the last days have been shortened to preserve the elect. Jesus said, I'm shortening the days to preserve the elect because there is the chance that they will fall away if I don't do that. Jesus is always advocating on our behalf. And this teaching of His, which is found in Matthew and in Mark, is set against the backdrop of what? Suffering persecution. As per the teachings of the Master, Peter believes it's necessary to notify his audience, both then and now, that the testing of one's faith is a very serious thing. The all-consuming fire of God will separate those of us who are truly committed from those of us whose commitment is lacking. And he knows he is the only just judge. The final righteous judgment of God will stand for all of eternity. Which is why I believe that Peter made the decision to close out this portion of the text with this very helpful warning. We talked about the heart of the loving father writing to his most beloved. 
If you're in the house today and you don't find that you're in right relationship with God or you are resisting the work of the Spirit, don't worry. God is on to you. He's in pursuit of you. You wouldn't be sitting here right now if He weren't. The very fact that you are where you are is not that He is stacking the cards against you. It's that He's in your corner championing for you. I'm right here. He wants you. It's as simple as saying, I don't know what it looks like and I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there, but let's go. You are who you say you are. That's enough for me. All of the details in regard to how I live and what I do and what I choose and what I like and what I don't like, you can work those things out in me and this body will help you get there. Because that's what love looks like. It puts the greater need of the other before its own. I feel like I am saved. So if there's someone in here who is not saved, then I should go to great lengths to make sure that they feel like every opportunity was given to them so that they could make the right decision. It's not about me. It's about them. Did God lay his life down for us while we were at enmity with him? Then we should lay our lives down for those who are still at enmity with him. It's not about judgment here. Remember, judgment isn't just about condemnation. Judgment entails reward for the faithful. And I want to be judged faithful. Can you guys read this last verse as we prepare to close? Peter writes, therefore. We know what this term signifies, everybody. What's it there for? Look at everything that precedes it, right? Peter says, in light of everything that I've already written, saints, stay faithful. That's the most important thing. Hold fast. Run the race knowing that you have not crossed the finish line yet. Keep your eyes focused on the One who will provide you with all that you need when you need it and depend on yourself less as you press into Him. Amen? That's what Peter's saying here. Is it the will of God for His children to suffer? Absolutely! It is God's will that His children would suffer. Is God the cause of our suffering? Absolutely not! We've talked about this at great length. Peter says, who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you? The answer is certainly not the Lord our God. He is our tower. He is our source of strength. He is our refuge. When we are hard-pressed, He is in it with us. He is not the problem. He is the solution. Amen? Amen. Yeah. God is for you, not against you. He is willing that none should perish. So choose Him because He made a way. Is it the will of God for us to suffer? Yes, but He's not the cause because He has authority over our suffering. That's what it means to be sovereign. Our suffering is not without purpose. God is producing something in us through it. Saints, when we suffer... It's our responsibility to press into our relationship with our great God and Savior who is already there in the midst of the suffering. When I was a kid, my mom used to have this thing on the, on the, on the, on the lampstand in the living room. 
and everybody in here knows it, is called footprints. It's about the angry individual who's in a conversation with God who says, every time I look back, I see one set of footprints. Where were you? Those were the most difficult times in my life. And God just lets this jackass go on and on and on and on and on and on and on with his complaining like all of us do. And then at the very end, very gently and very lovingly, he says, it was in those moments that I carried you. That I carried you. New Testament scholar Bill Mounts summarizes Peter's closing advice better than I ever could. So I'm going to read this and we're going to close in a word of prayer. He writes that committing oneself to God is not passive submission. It's not. Our responsibility is to what? Entrust our whole beings to the faithful Creator. It's not passive submission. Authentic Christianity involves active well-doing. We will most certainly endure hostility in the face of an unbelieving world. But there is no place in Christianity for victim mentality. Suffer in silence, he says, but get on with the job of living an active life of good deeds. While you suffer, because you will, and once you've entrusted yourself to the faithful creator, do good. As Christians, he says we should be known for what we do, not for what we suffer. Translation, stop complaining. And thank God for his great grace and mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can stand before it and be corrected. Thank you that you have given your spirit to us so that we can correct one another when we're out of line. Thank you that we have your spirit so that we can be a community who functions as the safety net to support parents who are dedicating their children to you because the trials in life will come. And as Jenna so clearly and so beautifully shared this morning, trials have already come in her life. But Lord, when your glory is revealed and we are rewarded, we will be reunited not only to you in the face of your glorious grace, but to our loved ones as well. This is the hope of the gospel. And it comes only through right relationship with you. So God, when we suffer, help us not to lose sight of the fact that you are Emmanuel, God, with us. You are present in the fire. You know what we're going through because you, our great high priest, are familiar with all of the temptations that we have faced. You are not far off. You are near and dear to the brokenhearted. So God, we thank you and we praise you because you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.